0: we're back with the conversation. This is Catherine Cruz. This morning, we look at the history of the Oahu North Shore community of Waialua. Our guest today, Kim Hee Kanoe-Wong, who has a master's in oral history from Columbia University and serves as an instructor for the North Shore Ethnographic Field School created by the University of Hawaii's Archaeolo- Archaeology Department. Uh, tai kavika is a uh, a chair of the Department of Ethnic Studies. He's an associate professor with the Departments of Ethnic Studies and Anthropology. And Keitha Wai is a Wailua community member and Kumuhula, raised with his paternal grandparents in Haleiva. His mo- father and mother hail from the Big Island. Uh, welcome to you all.
1: Aloha. So Aloha. glad.
0: So glad you could join us. And, you know, we uh, will start by listening to some of the stories from Wailua gathered by the Center for Oral History. And to help us with that, we're joined by uh, HBR News Director Bill Dorman.
2: Aloha, Catherine. As you mentioned earlier, you know, there are so many threads to the history of Wailua. The The first sugar camp plantation started there in 1865. But it wasn't really a success until decades later. Castle and Cook bought it in 1898. They built a new mill, a railway system, water storage, irrigation. Fast forward to 1991, and the Waialua Sugar Mill produced 8% of the sugar in Hawaii. Five years after that, in 1996, it was the last sugarcane plantation to close in Hawaii. Now, Waialua's relative isolation meant change came more slowly than in some communities on this island. And you'll hear more from these interviews, which were conducted, by the way, in the summer of 1976. We start with Lorna Awai Berger, who was born in Waialua in 1905. Her Hawaiian mother was from Lahaina. Her Hawaiian Chinese father was born in Waialua, where he was a jailer. She was one of 12 children, attended Waialua Elementary School, and her continuing education took her to McKinley High School at the age of 14. She actually finished school in Greeley, Colorado, and while she came home on weekends from McKinley and visited, she didn't move back until 1965. She taught at Kalakaua, Farrington, Manoa schools, and she played Hawaiian music and sang and occasionally did that professionally. And she talked about what it was like growing up there.
3: We had our own taro patches, and there was a time that one of my brothers even had a rice plantation. I think he had about five acres yeah. because the back of Haleiwa is all farmland, mm-hmm. taro and- uh, Hasu. And, and Hasu, huh yeah. because, and then there's a spring, you know, in the back, which is used to feed our taro patches mm-hmm. and rice fields. Saturday was all poi day. We made enough poi. Actually, I think we had two barrels that were about three quarter full of poi, which lasted the family for a whole week. We children had to go and do other chores, like taking the horses down to be bathed right across the way at the beach. And then we had to do other chores, like getting the wood into the kitchen, into the wood bin or clean the lam- lamps, lanterns, wh- if, you know, fill them up with yeah. oil, wash the chimneys, put them away before we could go and play, mm-hmm. or and swim for the rest of the day. Did you pick limo and
4: things like that when you were we kids, too, with we your mom?
3: limu limo fishing. We went uh, opihi fishing. Oh, we did everything that the old folks did. Did they have big heaps in this? Oh area? yeah, all yeah. along here. By no. Yeah. All the way. In fact we would go from here to or just a little ways up enough. Mm-hmm. And they were and good they were good size. Oh for her. Good size of the heat. and you'd have to go early in the morning when the tide is low and we just dive, you know, all around and take whatever we want. Mm. no, no more. You can go all day and you find right. one. If you're lucky. A mm-hmm. little and the fishing way. is the same. Fish holes were destroyed by uh, these divers putting Clorox in it. Once they do that, the fish don't come back. Yeah. Did you folks make your own salt? We gathered our own. Every summer, we would go to Waimea. The uh, reef, the shoreline, you know, was taken for the army when they were building the roads during the war. And so much of the a reef is gone, but anyway, they used to we used to go up there and we had our own little pool. Each family had their own section. August or July, depending on how hot the sun was, you'd have these beautiful flakes. We made enough salt to last us a year. As time went on and more people came and the military started going to the beach, we didn't know whether the pools were clean. Somebody could have capulloed it, yeah, eh?
5: right.
3: and we used to find beer cans in the in the, in the pool. So we
1: stopped
0: going. So Keith, I don't know. Is this the Wailua you knew? <laughs> no. By the
1: time, by the time we had come here, we actually lived in Kona until I was six, and by the time we had moved with Grandpa them here to Eva, all that has already was power already. All those. Um taro patches existed, but people were, were more, and my family started to lease out the, the patches to other people to raise hasu. So hasu kind of became more popular than, um, than taro. But I, re, I remember that. Um, upon occasion, we, we did find opihi. But I don't know if aunt, where Auntie was interviewed, whether it was by her house, by Waimea, or in Haleiwa, I'm not sure. But where we are, by the big house, we had to go to um, fresh air camp um, to go look for opihi. But opihi wasn't as popular as, you know, what PPP is, the small little limpets that grow Those are popular with us and ha'oki uki. So things were not quite the, the same by the time uh, we came here. Um, we would go out. Uh, lay nets in front of the house, but we didn't, we, we pa'i pa'i, we would go lay nets at, at night by the channel, and everybody get in the water and splash the water and try to chase fish into the into the nets. We did that. Um, we picked up vanna. We did collect some limu. I'm not up to date on all the Hawaiian limu, but the most popular, um, Ogo was so plentiful on the beach, and uh, bimu ele ele, the long, green, stringy one, that was really on a witch too. I remember doing that um like some of her spouses the our were educators so auntie helen auntie amy my grandpa they were all educators and grandpa was a minister and they did play professionally at the Haleva hotel when the hotel was was open um grandpa and his brothers, this is musicians there at the halieva hotel and those are some of the things i remember the big house that exists now, from what I understand, was not the original house, but at one time, I think Grandpa said there were like 22 or 23 of them that lived there, and they built a, a cellar under the house, and that's where all the aunties would go to do weaving, weave their lahala, the mats and baskets that they used for the family. So those are some of the things that uh, I was told and I, I remember, but but little different from when Auntie Lorna was talking when she was younger.
0: You know, I think one of my last trips out to Wailua, you know, by the old mill. I think it was there by the library, uh-huh. and I was uh, uh, pleasantly surprised that uh, I think at that store there you could you could buy uh, fern shoots, in which you don't see uh, too much uh-huh. uh, anymore. But you know, just just the little, those little things that you kind of know if you <laughs> you know.
6: Yeah, <laughs> you know.
1: yeah. Because even um, right now the harbor is is all new, but the old the old harbor. At a wharf but right at the corner there was a little store and the store was a mom-pop store i forget the name but it, they sold bamboo poles fish net, bait anything that you could just walk over to go and and fish then after school the little stores we had along school all had um ice cream candy I and mean, everything was so catered to um that environment of what was happening and stuff at this time and with the change, it's so funny because I'm thinking, you know, um, we have lots of stores now in Haleiwa, and I often go, wow, they all sell the same, the bikinis and everything, all the same. How do they do it? And then reflect back, well, all these stores all had candy, all had you know, ice cream, everything else, and they, and they existed the same way with the patronage from, you know, the local, well, us local kids and stuff. Yeah, so it was different times. We walked to school. Nobody had to worry about us, you know, getting hurt or picking us up. After school, we would run. We, before come home, we run to the beach. we take off our clothes, swim in our underwear so that we, we can come out, dry off, go home. And hopefully mom didn't know, think that we were, you know, holo, holo, doing our own thing. But we were home in time to do our chores and, and finish our homework. Yeah, but all, all these fun, simple things that... Um, Young kids today don't have opportunity to experience, I think, is a big loss.
2: Yeah, you know, changed times, similar in that same time frame as our, as our second interview. Patrick Arnold Jack Wong was born in 1899 in Papaiko on Hawaii Island. His father had emigrated from China in the 1880s. The family moved to Waialua after Patrick was born where his father became an interpreter for W.W. Goodale, the first manager of Waialua Sugar Company. Patrick left Waialua to attend St. Louis High School, next going to the University of Dayton and on to Hong Kong and Brazil. In 1953, he returned with his family to Hawaii and worked for American Security Bank until he retired. And in his interview, he started talking about his father.
4: Can you describe what your father did exactly for Mr. Goodale?
7: Oh, he was just a simple interpreter. Whenever there's anything to be done, where they require an interpretation, all my, my my father. And then my father has a shop uh, only about a few hundred yards from the from the sugar mill. And then Wailua at that time, on the Wailua side, not far from the from the Wailoo school, there used to be a Chinatown there. There used to be a Chinatown when Chantin was there. Huh? When that uh, Yehok was there. And then further over in Haleiwa, there's a Chan, the store. There was even the Chinese drugstore, store, a Chinese restaurant and so forth around the Wailoo. And then they have another Chinese shop near the bridge over in Lua just below the bridge there. I remember that well. You see, all Chinese talking, and they they play Paikau. Were there rice plantations? In yes, there's rice plantation is Makolea and Kauai Hapai. They import water buffaloes and import all the implements for uh, for uh, cultivating rice from China. They have those old things. Oh, yes, we used to go there. Wasn't that quite expensive to bring? No, in those days it's not expensive at all. That's why they could afford it. That's only a short distance from our house. Oh. Mokolea, That's where the rice used to go over the states. Not like now, coming from the states. They used to sell some locally Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. We used to sell them, those rice that we used to buy. Do most Chinese work for the plantation or work outside the plantation? Mm, mostly uh, work for the plantation except a few that uh, do their own planting. What kind of crops? Oh, Chinese vegetables. bitter melon and kai and things like that. Big vegetable gardens. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. I remember around Nualualua, uh, before we go to the second bridge, there's a big area where they plant all kinds of vegetables. Yeah. With the Chinese planting taro? Also. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, planting taro and this, what you call, lotus root, plenty of that. Mm. I remember those things. Uh. And
3: then eventually, most of the Chinese left Left. or did
7: they die they die and then the, the children refuse to do that kind of work and then they come out they get a better education they do something else
0: canoy huh? mm-hmm. give us some context about what we just heard
4: that was a recording um done by patrick arnold jack wong back in 1976 i believe um, and it kind of makes me chuckle because my family, Wong, is actually from Wailua, um, from that same area where he grew up. I don't know if we're related, but I wouldn't be surprised. There are so many Wongs here. Um, and in the end of his, his interview, he talks about how there were Chinese his um, immigrants who had come, and they'd, they'd work in the plantation and in that area, and then they'd eventually leave. And that's kind of what my family ended up doing, I guess, and they moved up to Wahewa. So, just a little further north, Um, but I'm happy to return back to Waialua to learn more about my ancestors and about the people of Waialua um, now with the North Shore Field School.
0: Yeah, and uh, tell us about what you folks are are doing there in that field school.
4: Yeah, so our um, class runs on Saturdays in partnership with the University of Hawaii, Um, and we actually started off about three years ago doing ethnographic work. So going out in the community, talking to Kupuna community members to learn more about Waialua and what makes it special and what are their um, memories and experiences that they've had there in that community. And since the pandemic, we've kind of had to switch. And now we are learning more about um, oral history and ethnographic um, interviews and things of that sort. Um, and how we can use the interviews that were done in the past um, and kind of unearth those stories and bring them to life in new ways and forms.
0: You know, we saw, you know, big ag, you know, come and go out there, you know, with sugar, and then there was a big push to diversify crops. And uh, many of those uh, sugar uh, plantation workers uh, managed to lease some of the property and, and are farming different things, you know, to... Uh, I don't know if anyone's doing rice, but uh, uh, I think one of the times I was out there, I think there was a farmer by Twin Bridge. I think they were doing uh, potatoes and, oh, what was it, asparagus, you know, just trying new things to see what would work for the farmers out there.
4: Yes, yeah, we know that they have Hasu farms out there. We've talked to Kupuna in the past who recall their own families growing gardens of vegetables, of fruit of picking mangoes from trees around their neighborhood and just snacking with friends. We hear stories from Akupuna about fishing, about going to the mountains, hunting, um, about all of these treasures and practices that they were able to do as kids and continue on um, to teach future generations and their own children and grandchildren now out in Waialua.
0: And the field school, you folks were partnering with uh, Kamehameha Schools too, I think, right?
4: Yes, our field school actually started off as an archaeology school um, in partnership with Kamehameha on one of their properties out along the North Shore. And we've been fortunate that they've continued to support our work all of these years, about eight years now, I believe, um, out in Waialua. And we're able to continue on and learn more about Waialua and her people.
2: You know, it's, it's interesting, Kanoi talked about uh, the, the nature of gathering oral histories. And, and I should mention that uh, wow. Vivian Lee was the, the woman who uh, interviewed Patrick Wong. Uh, Gail Gouvier uh, interviewed uh, Lorna Berger. And uh, just in terms of continuing with this, you know, hearing about the, the community and, the, and the, that area, Getting more into the the sugar mill itself is with our next interview, getting us to the daily workings of the sugar plantation. Starting in the early 1920s, Alfredo Santiago was born in Honolulu in 1908. His father came from Puerto Rico and married a Portuguese woman from Hawaii Island. Uh, his father died when Alfredo was, uh, was young, was eight years old, leaving him to care for his mother and three younger siblings until she remarried a year later. Um, he quit school after fourth grade and began working for the Waialua Sugar Company in 1923, and he spoke again, this is in 1976, all of these interviews, and he spoke with Norma Carr. What
3: was
8: your first job? oh I was in a boy gang. They used to call them the boy gang. You know, you pick up the scrap of the cane and pile it up. with The women's, they had women with us together, see. And then we load the cane cars with a step ladder. Mm-hmm. And then from there I rode up, rode up, till I got into the harvesting, driving mules, yeah. pulling cane out, see. And I stood there for quite a while, and then from there I went to the locomotives as a brakeman. I stood there for a while, I went back to the harvesting, and that's where I ended up. When you first started to work in
4: 1923,
8: do you, have, do you have any idea
0: how many people might have been employed by the plantation?
8: Oh, I think over a thousand. Over a thousand. But they don't have that today. No, they don't need that many today. No. Cotton King only had 150 men, and the Lourdes had 150. They don't have. Where that man went, we don't know. They all out. Okay. It's not that the plantation threw them out, but it was job elimination. See gradually you know they improved themselves how to get things. The men kept on going even the Puerto Ricans. Where they went? Most they went to Oakland or to the mainland. Haywood, Oakland, all all they all back there now.
3: Most. If there were still jobs for them here because this
4: plantation never laid anybody. No. If there were still jobs for them here why do you
8: think they left? Well I don't know they just thought they thought the mainland was better and they took off.
4: What kind of house did you
3: get on the plantation? Well,
8: the houses wasn't so bad. The house that we had had uh, three bedroom, parlor, and kitchen. Yeah. Of course, the toilet, you no, know, was, was outside, you know, like yes. the, the olden days. Yeah. The only time you had pipe in the kitchen was only for cooking. Oh. No such thing as that you could take a bed in the house. You had to take a bed in a wash house outside. What
3: did you eat for breakfast?
8: Well, breakfast, most we used to, before I leave the house, just take a cup of coffee and maybe some bread, with, you know, butter or something. Where did the
3: coffee come from? Well,
8: most of uh, the coffee used to come. To, some, some of us we used to go pick it up, see, Wait. up in the mountains. You know, yeah. And then we used to fix them home, you know, dry them, and then my mother used to roast them, and then she used to grind them with a grinder, and then she makes powder out of it, see, not like now, more on a powder side. And then she used to get these strainers. She make the hot water and put the coffee inside, so many spoons, and she got another tea kettle where she poured and run the water through that bag and then turns to the, you know, makes coffee.
4: And where in the mountains?
8: Way up in the mountains, ooh, it's way up.
3: Which side of Wildwood?
8: Wildwood. We used to go up, way up, go pick it up, put them in bags, and my stepfather had a, they had a horse and then we used to load them on a horse, bring them down. Then after a while, of course, the coffee started to come from Kona and all that.
3: Those coffee trees are still there. Oh the yeah, mountains?
8: they're still there. Do still
3: you go there. get coffee? From no, not internet? now,
8: not now. Why not? Because why you buy it in a store now? You don't have to. Easy. Them days was rather to go. Was better off to pick it and make it, than go out in a store and buy it.
2: Different pursuit of a cup of coffee back there. Alfredo Santiago uh, talking in, uh, in 1976 uh, with Norma Carr about to work on the sugar plantation in Waialoo, part of our uh, project with the, the folks from the Center for Oral History.
0: And if you are just tuning in, this is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Our guests in our studio, or excuse me, not in our studio, by phone, <laughs> uh, Keith Owai, Kanoe Wong, and Tai Kavika Tengen, all who have deep connections to Oahu's North Shore community. Uh, you know, you can join our discussion by calling us here at 941-3689 or one 941 3689 from the Neighbor Islands. And uh, Ty, maybe you should uh, jump in here. You know, you just heard uh, this uh, story from uh, back when. Uh, what are your thoughts?
6: Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, I I am just struck by all of the the stories and, and how much, even as they've they've changed in in terms of the the content and their experiences, how much we we're still hearing from kupuna that we're interviewing today in in our field school. So. Um, you know, as Kanoy had mentioned, um, the, the field school that we run with the support of Kamehameha schools um, takes students from UH out into the community in Waialua, to, as they had done back in 1976 with the Center for Oral History, which was actually the Ethnic Studies Oral History Program at the time. But in, in kind of following in, in that path, we have taken uh, students out to collect these, these stories. Uncle Keith who, you know, was was part of our very first um, group of Kupuna that we interviewed, uh, was so generous and gracious and sharing stories about that uh, the, the family lands that they're a part of that, you know, his great aunt Auntie Lorna was speaking about earlier. Um, and y- you get this sense of, of continuity in the in lifestyle that's rooted both in a Hawaiian tradition uh, of being a very special and really sacred place where high chiefs and kahunas um, came f- came from, um, and, and to that, that really important moment of the plantations, uh, which the, the last... Um, interviews, um, or the, the last one that we just heard was speaking so clearly to, and so many of the the narrators, those, those people that were giving us their stories, um, had had very similar experiences, even though you know these are decades later. But growing up in, in the kind of plantation town, where really the core of it is is community, um, it's work, it, it's um, these other. Um, Connections that are that are made uh, that are really rooted in in the land. One of the aunties that we just um, interviewed last year um, was was talking about also having the outdoor bathroom, you know, when she was growing up, and, and not you know not knowing the indoor bathroom until much later. Um, we had a number of um, um, kupuna that were also Employed by the the plantation, um, Uncle Lee Anderson, who's, who's another um, established and and well-respected leader in the community, um, Uncle John Hirota, as well. Um, the the two of them were sharing um, quite a number of stories, but many people that we were working with um, had these these deep connections with the plantation, and I think it's also this moment now that uh, the plantation is closed that it's bringing all these new questions of what is the future of Waialua. Um, you mentioned the diversified ag um, as being such an, uh, you know, one, one option um, that people are pursuing and I think you mentioned the Twin Bridge Farms and I think that's the Agadar family. Yes. Um, and schools now really. Um, you know, they had this big master plan in two thousand and eight, which is how we got involved with our field school is their efforts to I think think intentionally about um caring for those lands and, and not only treating it as, you know, real estate or, or something else. Um so taking care of the sacred sites but also trying to um, support agriculture in, in much of their lands that are especially up Malka. Um, a lot of these places that were mentioned in the last interview, you, you can't really access anymore. It's, it's not only they just don't go to pick up coffee beans <laughs> because you can buy them at the store, but a lot of people don't have that same kind of access. Um, so people have been approaching KS and working with them to um, start up these new agricultural um, efforts. But There's always the, the concern of, you know, when it becomes too much a part of the, the corporate ag world, right? Um you know, there was recently the the debate around this food hub that's coming up or has been proposed on former Dole lands, Dole being another big important entity out there, landholder that's selling off or sold off a lot of its lands. Um, a lot of the military lands, the Dillingham Airfield, you know, the the concerns over the the proposed developments there that are, sort of agriculture, right. but the not The fake really, farms. Right.
0: Yeah, the gentleman farms or the fake farms, as some people call right.
6: them. Right. So, you know, this, um, you know, what happens in this shift from one lifestyle to another is, is really the key question that so many are facing and that we were encountering, too, when we are doing our field school. And, you know, these North Shore Neighborhood Board meetings would be happening. And, you know, a couple, a couple of us would go or just the narrators would talk about what's happening now in the present. And you hear these concerns with change, even Auntie Lorna's original you know interview like you always see this change but it's it's so much quicker now that the plantation is is closed
0: and when you talk about the future of Wailua I think some of those community meetings have gotten pretty heated yes <laughs> oh gosh well uh you know if you're just joining us this is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio you can join our discussion about Wailua by calling one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. stay with us we'll be right back after a short break
2: Coming Saturday, January 30th, it's a virtual Atherton Studio show featuring Ron Ortiz II, playing songs from his recent album, Soul Street. Ortiz has played with Mick Fleetwood, Jack Johnson, Booker T. Jones, and now he's playing for you in an online show. The concert is virtual, so join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, Wealth Management.
6: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the art and museum spaces on Pauhana Friday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org.
0: back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Katherine Cruz. We're talking about Wailua, and I'm joined here in the studio with uh, HPR's News Director, Bill Dorman.
2: You know, uh, Ty was just talking about the, the centrality of, of community and, and of shared community concerns. Uh, our, our next interview actually mentions a bit of a, of a familiar community concern today in, in these days of the pandemic. And that's, that's the flu epidemic which was raging in Hawaii in, in 1920 and, and certainly whose presence was felt very strongly in, in Waialua. Uh, David Mahoy, who was of Hawaiian and Japanese ancestry, was born in Haleiwa in 1910. At least five generations of Mahois descend from Haleiwa. He attended Haliva Elementary and Le, Lelehua High School dropping out during the Depression. He was one of the few Hawaiians to work for the Waialua Sugar Company, and he was interviewed again in 1976 by Vivian
3: Lee. Do you ever remember Queen Liliokalani coming down to the summer house down here, or?
2: No,
5: I was too small at that time, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, but my mother told us where she would come, right down there by the garage now. That building is no more. She used to come with her maid and everybody. That's her summer resting place.
3: So tell me about now how you got the food or the main things that were in your diet. You, of course, ate a lot of poi. Yeah. What else did you eat when you were a little kid?
5: Summer month, yeah. You know the Oama, you know it's Oama. Yeah. Oama and Moeli are plenty during the summer month. So early in the morning, they would wake us. Up, go down there. We jump. We surround one time, just not for maybe a couple days, maybe three, four days, and then we go again for get some more. Did you
3: dry the fish, or how did, or just yeah, eat we, them right then?
5: They, they cook it. And majority of it they have to fry them. The salt they salted and fry them. Ah, I mean, uh, dry it up. No? Otherwise, would not last. No ice box. No?
3: So most of the way you preserve things was drying. Right? Drying, yeah. yeah.
5: Even the, you know, it's opal too. Eh? That fish only come when the, the mountain have heavy rain during the winter months. Mm-hmm. That fish come down with the waters. Yeah, about this big, but a lot of bone. We everybody used to go when after the water is, calm down, slow flowing. All the kids used to go hooking. It's a lot of fun, and that fish too, we cook and dry it up too. Did you have
3: a garden or raise vegetables too?
5: Most Hawaiians, they hardly have garden, no? Only the I oriental. Vegetable. Yeah. Yeah. The onion. yeah, so only two major uh, vegetables they use. I wasn't
3: that aware of that until now that I've talked to more Hawaiians. That's they didn't really introduce yeah. vegetables
5: in their diet till that's later, until right, after yeah. more Japanese, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I guess. That's right. The yeah. only uh, other kind is uh, seaweed kind, yeah, but that's not them no?
3: Do you remember um, in 1920, the flu yeah. epidemic? You
5: were still a little yeah. boy then, yeah. but do you remember yeah. that? My family, I don't know, I'm, we lost, I don't know how many of them. But as a whole, the Japanese was the hardest. He hit in the hardest, you know. At
3: the time of the Japanese. strikes, right. everyone Everybody together. Eh? One family one living in how many people? They lived Hawaii,
5: they lived Anybody there. That's why they would die, and every day somebody was dying. What about your family? Did any of them get sick? Yeah, we, we all got sick, but somehow we didn't. <laughs> no, no life was lost.
2: That oh, was David Mahoy talking actually to Gail Gouvier uh, and, um, and David Mahoy's wife actually uh, talking there in the background a little bit. You heard her talking about the uh, everybody living together and, and during that, that flu epidemic, which was late in arriving to Hawaii, uh, but certainly took a, a, a terrible toll here when it did.
0: Yes, the parallels to our COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, who wants to chime in on on what you've just heard?
6: I'll, I'll chime in for now. Though, so, if Uncle Keith wants to, you know, I'd be happy to hear more of his connections, also again to these families and the place. But I was I was struck because w- this is an interview that one of the first interviews I, I read when I was preparing for the field school when we were first I'm getting ready for it back in two thousand and eight, actually and it was still an archaeology field school. Um, and reading it again, I that this little bit of, of history about the epidemic of flu at the time when I was reading it, it just did not stick out, and all of a sudden it means so much more now when, when you're hearing it and reading it in the middle of, of this pandemic and the ways in which the the 1920 strike, which is kind of one of those Moments in labor history that is taught in ethnic studies kind of gets impacted and creates the conditions for for I guess you know one of these these clusters or the the spread of the of the flu back then really again highlights the the ways that you know, the the crises in the economy as well as just the world in general with the environment um, are always connected and how it's is something that you also, you know, move on from and you're able to carry on from, you know, there will be an after the the epidemic where you'll be telling stories about what it was to live through it. Um, And as I think most of these kupuna and others have shared, it's really that solidarity within the community, being tight-knit, knowing each other, um, knowing where to gather resources and, and how to feed oneself and one's family, that that gets you through this, um, and I've even heard a little bit from um, another uh, younger member of our North Shore um, kind of leadership out there, uh, Tehani Lewis Perkins, who's a part of the neighborhood board and was also a member of our field school as a community volunteer, but a very young emerging leader um, who will be on the, the webinar tomorrow. Um, and she was talking about the ways in which kind of the pandemic kind of forced everyone to slow down, but because Wailua and Haleiwa, despite all the changes, still retains a lot of that small town quality, um, they're able to kind of really um, do, for the most part, pretty well, and the cases are pretty low until tourism opened back up again. And once the tourists start going back, then she said, you know, they've seen more cases rise, which kind of, when everything was on lockdown, they were actually pretty good. So, you know, there's there's so much to think about um, when you're comparing across history, and um, yeah, really rich.
0: You know, one thing that I was struck by, you know, we just recently did a series on rice, and I checked out a book at the library uh, written by historian uh, Doug Wong, uh, Chong, and, uh, it talked about how the different you know, ethnic groups, some were suspicious about Western medicine, and they would uh, learn from each other about the medicinal plants. And the Chinese we you know, would learn from the Hawaiians about what was good for what. And I remember seeing a recipe uh, of green onions and uh, cockroaches for uh, respiratory illnesses, <laughs> which I thought was very interesting. Uh, but I don't know, Uncle Keith, you, you want to chime in here about the, this time? And
1: y- You and know, when it comes to, <laughs> th- to things that I remember, as young, well, we used to go visit my tutu in, in Waianae, and it was very um, common for us as soon as we went to visit our elders. The first thing we do is we grab the rake, we go in the yard, we start cleaning and, and weeding and, and doing things like this. On this occasion, when we went, we started to go um, by this area, and when we started to do stuff, then tutu said, Oh, don't, don't pick that. That's medicine for this. Then we go, somebody says, oh, no, don't touch that, because that's medicine for this. Oh, no, don't touch that. And, and from that, you know, we just learned that what we see as being weeds were very important for medicine. And, you know, the, our, the sad part is we never learned. You know, we just said, okay, and we and we just never bothered. And of course, at that time, you don't ask. Yeah, our, our teachings was, if, if they had the feeling for you, they would, they'll teach you. Other than that, you don't. Don't question or anything like that. Yeah. But I think even back then with uh, um, the flu pandemic, uh, you know, because Wailua is secluded, it's, it's funny that till today, town people go, wow, you live in a country. You know, they still consider Wailua so far. And kind of, that's kind of a protective wall, I think, for us that people think that way. Because we, we're still kind of in our own little area. Out on the North Shore, that, that kind of keeps us safe from a few things. Of course, you know, time is different today, like the opening up the tourist industry and stuff. But with that combination of our location and stuff, I think it, it, it helps us. And at one time, Wailo was a life source for Malansand of Oahu. And then you have, you have names like Kamananui, yeah, this powerful place. Then Haleiwa's the real name is Paala'a, to be held in things sacred. So that tells you that this place must must have been a really important place. And in chance, they write out Mokule'ia, that when you look at the top of your Mokule'ia, you look at all the, the plants that grew, it was like a pave, made patterns like a mat, and you see the different agricultural things. So just things like that kind of reminds me of the uniqueness and the special of this place we call Wailua.
0: I was just so amazed, you know, going back to do, uh, do stories there, uh, uh, you know, back in the country, and, you know, there was a farmer raising pygmy goats, mm. uh, and uh, I think I think one time I covered a brush fire, and and the firemen were like, uh-oh, somebody's pakalolo is bu- uh, burning <laughs> up, and <laughs> we better get down, uh, you know, upwind of it. Uh, <laughs> But uh, you know, and then you've got, uh, gosh, I think other folks are, are raising goats uh, for cheese, and and so, it, it uh, it's home for for uh, all kinds of agriculture
3: these days.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, we have diversified quite a lot, and that um, I think a lot of it there's there's plus and minus is the diversity. One of the biggest changes is, of course, the diversity of people, and and what we do, because you're know, doing our parents' time. My time as a young boy, the plantation unified all of us. We have one, we had one common bond, but there's nothing like that today. Everybody has their own little things that they're working in, and um, sad but yet happy is that one of the biggest changes that I've noticed, and for the, even my mother's generation, is that when we were young, things Hawaiian were not important. It, it wasn't, um, you know, you didn't learn anything about it.
6: wanted to jump in here on, and and build on what Uncle Keith was saying, and, and also try to bring Kanoi in because I, you know, with um, David Mahoy's interview, the first thing he mentioned was the elite Kalani and the memories of of her going in into Haleiwa, Waialua, and and you know that, um, you know, her presence, her her, her residing there, um, is, is such an important part of, of history, and you know, it's still you know, in the the Queen Liliuokalani Church that, that still bears her name, um, you know, a really present factor. And the what Uncle Keith was talking about about the sacred nature, the spiritual nature of the place, I I, I think you also see not only in the revival and revitalization of Hawaiian cultural practices such as hula, which which Uncle Keith is a kumu of. Uh, but also even in the churches. and and it's more of the Hawaiian Christian, but it's still a very Hawaiian way of honoring Akua and, and land. And the last um, time that we're doing interviews, we had a number of of different people actually across different churches um, that are represented out in Waialua, including um, you know the Native Hawaiian churches, um, as well as the, the LDS church. Um, and I think that an important part about faith, right, getting through this, is really important. And I know Kanoy has thought a lot about that in, in her own um, work. So maybe Kanoi if you could kind of comment there too. You know, I think
4: yeah.
6: one. Sorry, I think one thing too with with that with what Karika was
1: saying was that I think the churches really helped the families sing. You know, because most of the songs you sang growing up were church songs, and um, you not too many. And we sing like that today. But I, I said the spiritual aspect of us kind of get us together in that, uh, in that light of having um, ohana in the evening, singing, and doing things like that.
4: Kanoi? Yeah, kind of to to echo off of that idea of Uncle Keith and, and the importance of mele, of um, music and singing, is... Uh, just one of our many oral traditions and practices that we have that unites our, our own ohana, our families, but also our communities. Um, and that's really what we're trying to do with our class and our work in Waialua to use these oral traditions and record our oral histories um, as a way of remembering the people and the places and the culture of this very special place. Um, We're so grateful that we have these records from 1976 and that we're able to get a glimpse into time um, and to see what Waialua was like then and how these people have their own memories of Waialua. And now with our work, we're trying to document um, Waialua today before it's gone. As we know, there's a lot of changes going on in our community. Um, and we just want to remember it as best as we can before it's lost. And I kind of wanted to tie in to the Center for Oral History. They're doing a project right now on the COVID nineteen, um, and they're collecting oral histories of people's experiences through the pandemic, and learning more about how they are processing and understanding this changing world. And one day, these interviews will be um, valuable resources for us to look back on, just as we're looking back on these archival, transcripts, and interviews um, to see how people experience and process lifespan.
0: You know, I, I know, too, uh, You know, these days, Wailua is also uh, home to uh, sunflowers. <laughs> there are fields of sunflowers out there. And I know Cortiva, uh, uh, I think, has, has worked with the Wailua High School and the, the, the schools out there uh, you know, just to try and connect with the community. A lot of those families uh, are, what, maybe third generation, you know, from the plantation days. Uh, but, yeah, so it's, it's like bridging the gap, right? How do you connect the past with the future and, and uh, you know, what does uh, Wailua hold?
2: Part of that connection also clearly with with stories and, and Ty, as someone involved in gathering the stories now and then as you mentioned, going through the the stories of the past, certainly you've got to see a lot of parallels that go through with that.
6: Yeah, um, there's. I think that that gathering process itself is is just so important. Um, you know, we we have sometimes a tendency just to look really at the content of of the stories, um, which are extremely important and valuable and those connect us across the generations right but it's also that process of the gathering of learning how to sit and listen and to ask the right kinds of questions and then to bring in other family members I think when we're mentioning you know even in this last interview you you, you have um, David Mohoy's wife who's kind of on the side but then it kind of starts being a part of it too it um, this is something that was also common in the interviews we were doing. It became not only the students interviewing the kupuna, but also the family members who were kind of sitting on the side listening and, and also themselves learning these stories that might not otherwise be shared or passed down. And so um, that, uh, that, that process is, is so important for stu- um, not only students, but really anyone to get involved with. And it is really available um, for everyone um, to access, if they just kind of take that time, which, you know, if there's the silver mining of the pandemic, it, it, it is that it's kind of led us to spend more time indoors with family, and, and you maybe now have more of an opportunity to share and, and to make a project of, of passing these stories on, and so you yourself can then pass them on to your children and grandchildren.
0: Well, listeners, uh, if you like what you've heard today and you want to find out more, the Center for Oral History at UH Manoa will host a webinar, an online event tomorrow. It's entitled Weaving Voices, Memories and Futures of Wailua from 4 to 5.30 p.m., and you need to RSVP to attend. We have a couple of more minutes left. Uh, Any final thoughts? Uh, Uncle Keith, we'll start with you.
1: Well, hopefully... um you know, while like many other places, can be a place of respectful blending, of respectful blending of values, customs, traditions, of not only our kamaaina but also our malihini, because that's that's the future for us. We have to blend together and take the best that we have of each other for the future of our aina, especially our children.
4: Kanoi. Kind of to add on to Uncle Keith's mana'o about blending and and bringing us together, we have to um, take time to acknowledge each of our our contributions and each of our kupuna who are here with us um, and just listen and learn from all of the mana'o and wisdom that they have to share. And Ty?
6: Yeah, I just want to mahalo. you folks for letting us be a part of this and sharing uh, Waialua's stories um, for our field school or we have a website northshorefieldschool.org um, which has the archive of um, at least the first two years of our old histories um, last year unfortunately got disrupted so we weren't able to finish those archiving of those stories but we're working on that this year um, but um, you know, it's, a, it's been an honor for us um, to get to carry on this, these traditions of passing on Mo'olelo. All right. Mahalo. We'd
0: like to thank Tai Tengen, uh, Kanoe Wong, and Keith Awai and Bill Dorman. And we thank you, the listener, for joining us for today's show. We'd like some feedback. Uh, what do you think? And if you want to listen back, uh, check out our podcast. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.